0: Good afternoon and welcome. This is uh, a Capitol Hill briefing from the Cato Institute entitled, What in the World is Going on with Obamacare's Exchanges? Uh, And I am Peter Russo, I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute and very pleased to have a big crowd in here today. Um, The Wall Street Journal had a headline yesterday in the editorial called, Has the Meltdown Arrived?" So between these two questions, I think we'll sort all this out. Uh, there's a funny thing in healthcare policy is that people earn themselves epithets. Uh, we saw uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is often called the architect of Obamacare, along with Mr. Grubin. Uh, last week I introduced a man who was the father of health savings accounts, and later I will introduce Michael as the greatest antagonist to Obamacare. Although Bill Clinton is making a pretty good run for that one, <laughs> but Brian and Cynthia, you guys should think up epithets of your own you can wield about, so. But at any rate, uh, Cynthia Cox is our first speaker. She is the Associate Director for the Program for the Study of Health Reform and Private Insurance at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, There she conducts economic and policy research on the Affordable Care Act and its effects on private insurers and enrollees. Her work focuses on enrollment, pricing, and competition in the Affordable Care Act's exchange markets. She has also played a key role in the development of interactive tools such as the Health Insurance Marketplace Calculator. In addition to her work on the ACA, she contributes to the Peterson Kaiser Health System Tracker, which is aimed at monitoring the performance of the U.S. health system over time and in relation to other developed countries. Cynthia holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of California at Berkeley and a Master of Public Health degree from Columbia University. Brian Blaze is a senior research fellow focusing on healthcare policy with the Spending and Budget Initiative at the Mercatus Center. Brian's main research interests are the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. He writes regularly for Forbes and his work has been published in many outlets. Previously, Brian was with the Senate Republican Policy Committee where he served as a health care policy analyst and before that worked as a senior professional staffer for the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Brian received his PhD from George Mason University in 2013 in economics and did his dissertation on Medicaid. And last but certainly not least, Michael Cannon is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Canada's been described, as I mentioned, uh, Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist, and also as Obamacare's fiercest critic. And he is a co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he advised the Senate leadership on health, education, labor, and welfare. He has appeared on all the national networks, and his written work has appeared in all the major newspapers and periodicals, including JAMA, Internal Medicine, the Harvard Health Policy Review, where he also serves on the board, the Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law and Ethics, and many more. He blogs regularly at Cato, as well as at Forbes under the title Darwin's Fool. Cannon holds an MA in Economics and a JM in Law and Economics from George Mason University. So the format is, I'll each speak for about 12 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to questions. So without further ado, let's welcome Cynthia Cox.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me. So um, I'm Cynthia Cox, I'm with the Kaiser Family Foundation, and we are a nonpartisan organization that researches health policy issues. We're not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, we like to make that uh, disclosure first. So. I'm going to start with, here, how do I push Okay. so by now many of you have uh, seen this chart. This chart shows the historic drop in the ranks of the uninsured that occurred since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and regardless of your views of the health reform law, it is, uh, there's little debate as to whether it has been effective at at least Uh, increasing the number of people with health insurance in this country. It does that by expanding Medicaid, as well as uh, creating these new markets called the exchanges where people can purchase health insurance with a subsidy. Uh, It also makes young adults eligible for coverage to stay on their parents' plan and does away with pre-existing condition exclusions. Um, And the combination of these provisions has led to a historic drop in the uninsured rate. so what happens when people get insurance? Well, it turns out they use it. Um, and this actually, this chart shows, we've done several studies of the newly insured population showing that uh, they have taken up uh, health care utilization. Um, in fact, uh, in some ways, it turns out that people in this market may be using more health care than insurers expected them to. Um, so, this kind of brings us to today looking at the exchange markets or the individual market, which is where people purchase their own insurance. Now, again, this is just one piece of the health reform law, it's where about of people get their health insurance. Um, So while there are relatively few people affected by what happens in this market, it is still a very important market because it is one of the only options for insurance for this group of people, as well as it being kind of the new way that people get insurance under the health reform law, which is why it gets so much attention. so we've heard from many insurers that they have experienced significant losses in this market. So many private insurers are doing well in other markets like the employer market or with Medicaid managed care contracts and so on. But when it comes to the individual market, there have been substantial losses by a number of health insurance companies. Um, and why is that? Well there's a few possible reasons. So one is that there are sicker people enrolling, or at least fewer healthy people enrolling to balance out the sicker people. And so healthcare utilization in this, in this group is higher than insurers expected or priced for. Um, sort of the other side of the sicker enrollees coin is that maybe insurers also just price their premiums too low. There is uh, in many parts of the country a very competitive market where insurers are trying to price plans low so that they can be one of those low cost plans that most enrollees are going towards in order to pick up market share. Uh, in many cases, it seems that insurers priced lower than they should have, and in fact they priced lower than what CBO projections had expected. Now there's some other factors too that didn't necessarily uh, cause losses, but may have contributed to the losses. So uh, there was a change made to one of the risk one of the risk based programs that the Affordable Care Act has. So th- because insurers were operating with such little information and in a completely reformed market, there were a few programs put into place to kind of help them uh, mitigate some of the risk that they were taking on by participating in the individual market under the ACA. And one of those programs was the risk corridors program, which would have offset losses for insurers by the government Uh, taking up some of those losses, but this program was changed to be budget neutral, so insurers ended up getting much lower payments than they expected, so that may have contributed especially for some smaller insurance companies to having greater losses than they could handle. Um, There also are some examples of insurers that may have had less control over their costs than they maybe should have or maybe than their competitors had, so some insurers appear to have entered into this market with health insurance plans that looked like those offered to employees. employees. EMPLOYEES uh, TEND TO HAVE PRETTY GENEROUS COVERAGE WITH LOTS OF CHOICES OF DOCTORS, WITH HIGHER PREMIUMS. Um, THIS IS A LOWER INCOME GROUP OF PEOPLE AND THEY'RE PRETTY PRICE-SENSITIVE AND THEY HAVE MIGRATED TOWARDS LOW-COST PLANS. That, AND the, THE PLANS THAT ARE LOW-COST THAT had MORE CONTROL OVER THEIR PROVIDER NETWORKS, LIKE SMALLER, NARROW NETWORKS OR HMOs WHERE THEY HAVE TO GET A REFERRAL TO GO TO A SPECIALIST, THOSE PLANS MAY HAVE DONE BETTER THAN THEIR COMPETITORS. So now with these losses, insurers have a choice. They can either raise premiums substantially or leave the market. Um, what we are seeing going into 2017 is that a number of companies are leaving the, health in- the individual market or the exchange market or both in some cases. So uh, at Kaiser Family Foundation, we have been tracking exits and entrants for the next year into this market. We have identified at least 23 companies that plan to leave the exchanges uh, in at least one or more states. Uh, now, a couple of these companies are, one is United Health, and one is Aetna, and those companies are leaving multiple states. So if you count this on a state-by-state basis, it's more like 66 exits uh, from this market. Now, most of the companies that had a presence in multiple states will continue to participate in at least one state. So it's not so much that these companies are exiting the market overall entirely across the nation. Um, In many cases, they're exiting most of the states that they participated in, but staying in a couple. Um, Or in some cases, they may be exiting one state, expanding into another, or exiting one state, staying in another state, and expanding their footprint in that state. Now, there are at least six companies that we've identified that are entering into the exchanges. Uh, Cigna is one of those six companies that's entering into three states that we know of right now. Um, So really what we're seeing is that there is an imbalance here. There are certainly more companies leaving than there are coming in for next year. And so we're expecting insurer participation to be much lower on the exchange markets in 2017, as well as there being changes within states in terms of where... Uh, these companies are participating. so this this chart shows 2014, 2015, twenty sixteen, so the first three years of the ACA exchanges what insurer participation has looked like and what we're expecting it to look like in 2017 although within the next couple weeks we'll get final data so this is still preliminary but what we're expecting as of the information we have right now is that insurer participation will be similar to what it was in 2014 or maybe a little bit lower than 2014 um, certainly lower than 2015 and 2016. so Um, You can see on average we're expecting five or maybe somewhat fewer than five insurers to be participating in each state in 2017 compared to five in 2014. Um, Three or more insurers is kind of what is seen as, as a good number for having competition in a market, and we're expecting 36 states to have three or more insurers next year compared to 39 in 2014, so kind of similar, but certainly less than what we've seen for the past couple of years. Um, Now this is at a state level, At at a bird's eye view, insurer participation is dropping across states, but maybe similar to where it was in 2014. But when we look at it in terms of people or counties, you know, at a more local level, which is where competition is really taking place and where enrollee choice is really taking place, you see a, a bigger effect. And, and so we're expecting about uh, 2,300,000 people next year will have only one insurer to choose from on the exchange compared to 300,000 this year. So that's an increase of about two million people. We'll have only one insurer on the exchange. And similarly, we're expecting an increase of about a million people. We'll have a choice of just two insurers um, over this current year. So where are those people? Well, a lot of them are in rural counties. So this is showing the bottom two charts are showing counties. Um, You can see, oh, it looks like the chart did not work. but essentially, many more counties will also have one insurer, but for the most part, those are rural counties. Um, although there certainly are some cities as well. So, Phoenix and Philadelphia are some cities that we've identified that may have just one insurer in the entire exchange market. Um, for a while there, there was concern that one county in Arizona would actually have zero insurers, although the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan has decided to step in or come continue to operate in that county. So as of this time, it looks like every county will have at least one insurer, although many more will have just one insurer than had this current year. So the orange counties here on this map are where there would be just one insurer based on our analysis of what's available so far. So you can see there it's concentrated in rural areas as well as southern states. So some of these states like Wyoming already had one insurer. But as a result of the exits, Oklahoma, Alabama, South Carolina, a lot of Florida, um, and also Arizona will have just one insurer on the exchange. And why do why do we care? Well, I mean, obviously for consumer choice, we would want uh, enrollees to have a choice of health plans. Um, but competition is is obviously the goal of um, or one of the goals of improving the individual market and. So far, the individual market, which again, this is where 5% of people purchase their insurance. It's a relatively small market, um, but it's, it's an important market for, for the exchanges and for the ACA. One of the goals was to improve competition in this market. And you can see we don't have data from before the ACA, but you can kind of use 2010 as an approximation of what it was like before the ACA. And this market has been concentrated. Uh, red means concentrated in this chart. Um, So there has been a little competition in the individual market since before the ACA. So this is not a problem that was caused by the ACA, but the ACA has not yet fixed it. Um, And then the concern is, with less competition, could that lead to higher premiums? And uh, there is some evidence out there that suggests that that could be the case. but even taking a step back and looking forward into 2017, you know I don't think that the lack of competition or the, or the lessened competition is going to have as much effect in 2017, maybe down the road, maybe in 2018 or, or farther. Um, for 2017, most insurers have already filed their premiums. Some were allowed to revise them for next year because of the exits or changes in the market, but for the most part, that would be something that would be down the road. Um, But just looking at 2017, we were already expecting premiums to be higher in 2017, even aside from the exits, uh, in part because of losses. Uh, So some of these reasons may look familiar. They're similar to the reasons that insurers are are losing money. So um, losses and underpricing are one reason we expected premiums to go up next year on the exchanges. Um, Insurers need to uh, be making a profit or at least breaking even in this market in order to to continue to participate. Um, We've also estimated that premiums, or at least the the benchmark premiums, are 12% lower than what CBO had projected they would be by this point, so insurers maybe have some catching up to do in terms of uh, charging adequate premiums. Um, There's also the phasing out of a reinsurance program, which had kept premiums about four to six percentage points lower um, in the last couple of years. And um, then every year, the cost of healthcare goes up, like prescription drug costs and so on. Um, Now, there may be some factors driving premiums down, um, one of which is a trend towards more narrow networks or more HMO plans. So we may see that that could help keep premiums more moderate. as well as competition where there still is competition or even in the parts of the country where there is only one insurer offering on the exchange. There are generally other insurers offering off of the exchange, so they continue to be competitors in that sense. So earlier this summer, we looked at what insurers were requesting for premium increases for next year, and we found that on average premium increases for the lowest cost plans would have been increasing about roughly 10 percentage points in the cities with available data. Uh, These cities tend to increase slower than rural areas, so I would expect that the average increase overall across all states would be higher than this. Uh, These are also requested rates, and we don't have the final rates yet for all of the country. We will probably get that in a couple of weeks, but um, so this is sort of a preliminary look. Now, this looks much smaller than some of the anecdotal reports that we've heard of very big average increases of, say, 50%. Um, Now, there certainly will be some places where the lowest-cost option is going up by double digits, by maybe even 50%. Um, But in many cases, there will be insurers that offer a lower-cost option, and people tend to switch plans. So there is a high rate of shopping around in this market. If you ask people why they chose their plan or what what their most important factors are for choosing their plan, it's often costs... Um, And so people in this market are very price sensitive and have shown a willingness to shop around, have shown a willingness to compromise when it comes to having a smaller provider network, for example. Um, So it's likely that people won't necessarily pay that 50% increase as long as there is a lower cost option still available. In some places, there may not be a lower cost option available. Um, but then in those cases, there's also subsidies that are available to a, to a large segment of the people who are signing up through the exchange. But then there's also the off-exchange market where none of those people are eligible for subsidies. So those people who are, or, or maybe none of the people who are making above 400% of poverty, for example, would be able to afford paying an increase of 50%, so we may see that some people leave the market if they're not able to afford to continue to pay their premium. Um, So just sort of summarizing what to expect for 2017, we're expecting lower insurer participation, although um, at at least at a state level it seems similar to what we saw in 2014 when the exchanges first opened. Um, Most enrollees will still have a choice of at least three insurance companies but people who live in southern states and rural areas are more likely to have a choice of just one company or no choice in that case. We're also expecting higher premiums, likely double-digit increases, and um, a lot of the factors that are driving premiums, aside from the exits, are temporary or one-time factors driving premium increases. So if if it weren't for the exits, if there was more stability in this market, then we would have expected this to be a one-time increase, sort of a market adjustment of sorts. Uh, with all of the exits, it's really hard to say what the long-term effect is going to be, if, if the lack of competition could lead to higher premiums um, or more destabilization, if, if insurers continue to leave the market next year. Um, ultimately, I think what needs to happen is the market needs to grow, and there needs to be uh, strong enrollment for insurers to come back into this market.
2: Uh, My name is Brian Blaze. I am a senior research fellow with the Mercatus Center. Uh, Michael, thank you for inviting me to participate today. Uh, Our communications director said it's always start, it's always wise to start your presentation by trying to bond with the audience by presenting a picture of uh, one of your children. (laughs) So that's what I've done here. This is my youngest child, Lucas. He's normally a very happy child. He's also very expressive. Uh, This is the picture that we captured of Lucas when he was uh, contemplating uh, former President Clinton's statement that Obamacare is the craziest thing in the world uh, just a month before the election. And this is a picture we were able to capture of Lucas. He's very sympathetic when he heard about the uh, 76% average premium increase uh, in the state of Oklahoma for ACA plans going into next year. Uh, I'm going to go through sort of a year-by-year um, picture of the ACA and then give some remarks on where I think the exchanges are today. Uh, in July, the Brookings Institution uh, produced a paper on how premiums in the industrial market are actually lower um, than they would be if we didn't pass Obamacare. And that struck, struck me as something inconsistent with um, everything that I thought to be true, and I looked into the evidence. Uh, there were three studies that I found of the ACA's initial effect on premiums from 2013 to 2014, 2014, the year that the key provisions of um, Obamacare took effect. Um, Manhattan Institute, University of Pennsylvania, and actually a Brookings study. uh, And they found premium increases on the magnitude of 20 uh, to 50%, depending on what the methodology was. I think one of the key things when you're looking at the premiums uh, in 2014 is that they don't account Significant back end subsidy payments that insurers received, which led to lower premiums. So, the primary uh, program, uh, and, and Cynthia mentioned this, is the reinsurance program. The reinsurance program is funded by a fee on basically everyone who obtains health insurance, and it funds a pot of money, and that pot of money is then delivered to insurance companies who are offering um, Obamacare compliant plans in the individual market. In 2014, it delivered <laughs> about $8 billion to insurance companies. And originally, it was supposed to, when insurers set their premiums, it was supposed to um, offset, so the payments would go to insurers to pay for 80% of individuals who incurred claims between $60,000 and $250,000. Because there were lower number of enrollees than projected, they were able to make the reinsurance program more generous to insurance companies. They lowered... Um, the atta- what they call the attachment point to $45,000 and increased uh, the co-insurance rate to 100%. Insurers actually received risk reinsurance payments that equaled about 20% of premiums in 2014. So when you look at the losses that insurance companies made overall in 2014, um, they made those losses uh, even with a subsidy that equaled 20% of premiums, uh, based on the risk corridor data and we know risk corridors is sort of a proxy for insurer profits or losses. Uh, I estimated that insurers in 2014 lost about $400 per enrollee, and that premiums, on average, would have had to have been 26 percent higher in 2014 for insurers to avoid losses, assuming the same risk pool, which is an unrealistic assumption. If premiums would go up 26 percent, the people who would drop out from the risk pool first are the individuals who are the youngest and healthiest, um, and the least likely to uh, uh, to value to, to to buy the insurance with the premium increase? Uh, we know premium increases were relatively small from twenty fourteen to twenty fifteen. Um, in June, we released a paper trying to put uh, insurers' performance selling qualified health plans. And qualified health plan is a, um, a plan that is compliant with all of. Obamacare's provisions and is certified to be sold on an exchange. They don't have to be sold on an exchange. About one third actually were sold off exchange in 2014. And we compare that to non QHPs. So these are largely plans that were allowed um, to continue grandfather plans or grandmother plans, um, which are transition plans. You can see here that the average premiums that insurers collected for qualified health plans um, was about $4,200. Uh, They also received cost-sharing reduction payments of about $340. And those, you can think of, are payments to insurers uh, for them to uh, increase uh, the- for them to sort of make plans more attractive by decreasing deductibles um, and decreasing other copayments. And you can sort of see that those are sort of a, a premium subsidy as well. And then you see the net reinsurance payments of over $900. So if you compare- Um, premiums in the QHP market, sort of effective premiums when you include these subsidy programs, um, they are almost $2,400 higher than premiums in the non-QHP individual market in 2014. Now in 2015, we started hearing stories from insurers that people were taking advantage of sort of the key provisions in Obamacare, which are a guaranteed issue, which means if you apply for coverage, The insurance company has to offer you a plan and community rating, which insurers couldn't vary premiums based on the health status of enrollees. Now, that creates an incentive for people to wait until they're sick to purchase coverage. And insurers started reporting in 2015 that that's exactly what a lot of people were doing. Um, there were special enrollment periods that were supposed to minimize the ability of people to do this. There were already sort of some concerns that the special enrollment periods could be gained. Um, and for the first two years, the administration, for the most part, failed to verify people's, um, uh, the reasons that they were listing for their special, um, has, a, has a reason to use a special enrollment period, such as a loss of job and coverage that goes um, uh, with the job. Michael actually was one of the first people to write about um, Uh, these provisions and how um, the the law was susceptible to this gaming. As a result of this gaming, as a result of uh, much higher medical claims than expected, we know insurers made sizable losses in 2015. So I estimated the losses were about $1,000 per enrollee using uh, premium data and medical claim data. Uh, McKinsey and Company estimated that insurers' losses doubled Going from 2014 to 2015, uh, last year we saw sort of the first sizable premium increases in for the Ob- for the Obamacare market, about 12 percent on average, according to um, uh, Charles Gaba, at, who does a lot of this sort of data work. Um, and you can find his stuff at acasignups.net. It's a very very good blog to stay up to date on what's going on with the ACA. This. Because face value premiums don't reflect Obamacare's initial impact because of the large reinsurance payments and the high losses, really the best place to go and see what the impact of the law is is examine medical claims. So the blue line there represents um, when Obamacare's key provisions are going to take effect. So you can see prior to, in 2013, uh, the blue line So the trend line there, that's the individual market. And uh, the three lines on top are different types of employer coverage. And you can see um, that individual uh, market uh, average claims are significantly lower than employer um, average medical claims, about 40% lower in 2013. You can see a significant spike in 2014, and then also continuing in 2015. Average medical claims in 2014 in the individual market went up 38 percent. In 2015, they went up another 23 percent. That's a combined increase of 69 percent in those two years. Um, If you look at the increase in the employer market over that time, it was about 11 percent. So if you're assuming um, what would have happened without Obamacare in the individual individual market um, would have happened in the employer market, the difference, about 58 percent, um, you can probably, I think, plausibly attribute to, uh, to the ACA. Now, why is all this happening? Why are uh, medical claims, on average, rising so significantly, insurers making large losses? Um, this chart uh, shows projections that were made by uh, RAND, CMS Office of the Actuary, Urban Institute, and the Congressional Budget Office when the law passed for exchange enrollment in 2016. On average, those groups projected there would be about 24 million exchange enrollees this year. HHS reported, has the end of March, um, about 11 million exchange enrollees. And we know over the course of the year, in 2014 and 2015, more people drop coverage than sign up for coverage during the year. So um, exchange enrollment is less than half of what was originally expected when the law passed. We also know that enrollees are much older than expected. In 2014, when I was at the House Oversight Committee, we uh, wrote to insurance companies asking them what their expectations were for enrollees um, in the uh, exchanges and the off-exchange plans uh, by age category. And if you look at the bottom, the over 55 line, they expected uh, about 18% of enrollees would be over the age of 55. It turns out in 2015 and 2016, 26, 27% of enrollees are over the age of 55. We know that on average, individuals in that group spend about six times more on health care than young adults. So insurers enrolling a larger portion of older enrollees is going to significantly um, uh, push up average medical claims. We also, if one of the um, uh, things you, you might notice is that the 2015 and 2016, numbers are virtually identical. Okay. I think this. The, the hope was that in 2016, the individual mandate, which reaches its peak penalty size, $695, um, or 2.5% of income above the tax filing threshold, whichever is greater, would induce young and healthy people into the market. Okay, Thus far, that certainly didn't happen in 2016. Um, it's you know, doubtful. I think it's possible it could happen To some extent in 2017, as people learn more about the mandate penalties, um, that's certainly something to pay attention to. Uh, Second uh, key data point is that exchange enrollees are much poorer than expected. So the projection I have here is from the Urban Institute. This projection was made in January 2015 when they were modeling the impact of a potential King Burwell decision. They estimated that 36% of exchange enrollees in 2016 would have income below 200% of the poverty line. 200% of the poverty line is about $24,000 for a single person. Um, They estimated that 25% of exchange enrollees, this is a projection they made just last year, they estimated 25% of exchange enrollees would have income above 400% of the poverty line. It turns out that number is 2%, okay? The only group signing up for ACA plans through the exchange in large numbers are people who have income below 200% of the poverty line. These are people who qualify for very large tax credits to reduce their share of the premium and also qualify for very generous cost-sharing subsidy payments that significantly reduce deductibles as well as other cost-sharing amounts. And one of the things you've probably heard about Obamacare plans is that they come with very high deductibles. Um, Really, the only people buying the coverage to the degree expected are individuals that receive um, payments that significantly reduce those deductibles. Uh, What is in store for 2017? So these uh, numbers come from uh, ACA signups. They are, uh, as of a few days ago, uh, about half of the states, as Cynthia mentioned, are approved rates, and half of them are requested rates. Um, These show weighted averages. Uh, The the approved rates and the requested rates are actually very close. I think actually the approved rates are coming in slightly higher than the requested rates. Um, You can see that for Oklahoma. The requested rate was 71%, and the approved rate um, uh, that I mentioned earlier, is 76%. That is for the uh, rest of the states that don't fit nicely. Uh, Cynthia mentioned competition in the ACA exchanges. Uh, This diagram is what we put together um, based off of an Avalier Health study that came out about a month ago. And they looked at the average number of insured, they looked at the number of insurers per rating area in the state. And uh, in our diagram here, uh, the yellow represents uh, states that have at least three insurers um, on average per rating area. Um, the red are states that they projected would have just one single insurer across the state. So really, the yellow are the only states where you are seeing significant competition. Um, defined has three or more insurers per rating area across the country. Uh, Finally, um, one comment on risk adjustment. So risk adjustment is potentially a very important part of the ACA to keep in mind going forward. It is the one premium stabilization program um, that is a permanent program. Uh, The other two are reinsurance, which I discussed, and and risk corridors, which which Cynthia discussed. Um, Risk adjustment, is intended to transfer money from insurers that enroll healthier people to insurers that enroll sicker people. It is budget neutral. So some insurers gain, some insurers lose. There's been a lot of controversy about how risk adjustment has worked thus far. A lot of co-ops who have incurred staggering losses have also had to make significant payments into the risk adjustment program and basically say the the formula is unfair and it advantages big health insurance companies. Um, For, this is the the one point I want to make about this, for the ACA exchanges to work, because of all the um, cross-subsidies that need to to happen, young and healthy people have to enroll in adequate numbers to offset insurers' losses on older and sicker people. Thus far, we know that they haven't signed up. Um, But risk adjustment, if it works perfectly, eliminates or significantly reduces the incentive of insurers to enroll the young and healthy people that in the aggregate are needed in order for the, um, uh, the law's complicated system to work. Um, so I am skeptical that by getting sort of changing, jiggering with the risk adjustment formula, that that can bring um, long-term stability to the, um, uh, to the ACA marketplace. And I am finished. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to Cynthia. Uh, thank all of you for coming. Uh, at the risk of making Brian's children cry, I thought uh, we would, I would start, off, start us all off with this. The
2: people that are getting killed in this deal are small business people and individuals who make just a little too much to get any of these subsidies. Why? Because they're not organized. They don't have any bargaining power with insurance companies, and they're getting whacked. So you've got this crazy system where all of a sudden 25 million more people have health care and then the people are out there busting it sometimes 60 hours a week wind up with their premiums doubled and their coverage cut in half. It's the
3: craziest thing in the world. So if you didn't catch that, the the, the last part was that uh, the people who are out there busting it sometimes 60 hours a week wind up with their premiums doubled and their coverage cut in half. So. Uh, most people focus on the first part of what former president clinton said which is premiums i'm going to talk a little bit about the second part how coverage has been cut in half because that's actually the more alarming part of what is happening in obamacare's exchanges right now and we're going to start by talking about the most important obamacare poll question that you've never heard of okay in 2012 uh, the reason foundation uh, commissioned a poll they asked a question about the centerpiece of the Affordable Care Act. It's provisions banning discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions, saying to insurance companies, you can't, char- you can't deny coverage to people with preexisting conditions, you can't charge them higher premiums. And like all polls that ask about this provision of the ACA in isolation, the respondents said they favored it. The respondents in this poll, 52% to 39% said they favor banning discrimination against pe- uh, pre- people with pre-existing conditions in health insurance. What made the Reason poll different was that they didn't stop there. All other polls, they just stop right there. They ask about this provision of the aca as if it only has benefits. Basically what they're asking people is, do you want to give sick people health care? Frankly, I'm surprised that 39% of respondents in this poll were economically literate enough to recognize that this is a bad idea. In most polls, you will get 60, 70, 80 percent of people saying, yes, I support banning discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions and health insurance. But the reason poll went farther, it asked about some of the costs associated with this provision because if you don't ask about the costs, uh, as well as the benefits, then you're not really getting an accurate picture of what it is that people value when you're doing a public opinion survey. So they asked, "What what if this provision increased wait times? What if it increased premiums? What if it increased your taxes? And what they found out was support flipped to opposition, especially if it was going to increase taxes. But then the really interesting part was when they asked, what if this provision was going to reduce the quality of care that you and your family receive? And the results there were dramatic. Support flipped to to 5-to-1 opposition. 76% oppose the centerpiece, the supposedly popular part of Obamacare, if it would result in them or their family members getting uh, lower quality care. So, next I wanna talk a little bit about Julie Davis. Julie Davis is a young mother in Kentucky. Uh, she has two children. She also has epilepsy, which for years had been controlled by a medication uh, for which she was paying under her health plan, her pre-Obamacare plan, $60 a month. When she switched to an Obamacare plan in mid-2014, her copay rose to about $1,200 a month. She couldn't afford that copay. She decided against her doctor's advice to switch to another drug where the copay was lower. And uh, though her seizures had been controlled under the original medication, they, they returned under the new medication. And this sort of erosion of coverage is not an isolated event. This is actually a trend under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The consulting group group, Avalaire reports that ACA plans are increasingly requiring higher cost-sharing, tighter utilization controls, and other ways to restrict drug coverage for people with expensive conditions like HIV and cancer and MS. Uh, Avalair has also reported that exchange plan networks have one-third fewer providers than off-exchange plans do, and in specialties like oncology and cardiology, they have 42 percent fewer providers. Modern Healthcare uh, reports that there has been a stampede toward these sorts of narrow networks among health plans participating in the ACA. The media have been reporting on this trend since uh, 2014. Patient groups like the I Am Essential Coalition, which represents about 197 uh, different patient groups, have been hounding HHS about this trend since it began in 2014. Uh, and Democrats, to their credit, have acknowledged and complained about this trend a lot more than Republicans have. Uh, and this. The trend toward uh, worse coverage for the sick is so bad that even with all the subsidies and limits on out-of-pocket expenditures, some patients can't, still can't afford the medical care that they need. In 2014, uh, a reporter at Huffington Post named Jeffrey Young uh, reported that the trend toward narrow networks has the effect of denying care to the sickest, most expensive patients because they can't get, because they can't get appointments with specialists. And the IAM Essential Coalition has written to HHS that this race to the bottom completely undermines the goal of the ACA. So what's going on here? Is this just some insurance Is this just insurance company greed and insurance company discrimination? Or as law professor Tim Jost asks, is this something that is inherent in the structure of the program? Well, supporters of the ACA will say, this is just insurance company greed. Insurance companies are making coverage worse for the sick because they still don't want to provide coverage for sick people, and they'll cite co- uh, Comments like uh, those from economist Dana Goldman, who says, you know, why would anyone charge high copayments for generic HIV drugs? I mean, these are very uh, effective treatments, maybe the most effective products on the face of the planet, and you see high copays. The only reason is because they don't want HIV-positive patients enrolled in their plans. And there's something to this, but there's another perspective that says uh, that that's true as far as it goes, but the truth is actually worse than that. It's actually much, much worse than that. According to this perspective, Obamacare is creating a race to the bottom. Coverage is getting worse for the sick because Obamacare literally punishes insurers if they provide coverage that is attractive to the sick. And it rewards insurers who provide the worst coverage for the sick, and this is an inherent and persistent feature of the program and Obamacare will keep making coverage for the sake worse year after year until Congress eventually repeals it. Now, the Kaiser Family Foundation has sort of hinted at this dynamic when it writes that as a result of the ACA's ban on discrimination against preexisting conditions, insurers have an incentive to avoid enrolling people who are in worse health, uh, and, such as by making their products unattractive to people with expensive conditions. But what are those incentives? Well, let's go back to Dana Goldman's example. Goldman complains that insurers are charging high co-payments for highly effective generic versions of HIV drugs. But if you want to understand what's happening, you have to ask, what does Obamacare do to an insurer that doesn't charge high copayments for generic HIV drugs? Obamacare actually punishes that insurer. The pre-existing condition provisions tell insurers you have to charge everyone of a given age the same premium no matter how sick they are. You have to charge HIV patients and the same amount as people who aren't going to file any claims at all. Now, that's a government price control. And under that scheme of government price controls, each individual healthy enrollee becomes extremely lucrative for the health plan, and each individual sick enrollee becomes an even bigger net loss. And in that environment, what, kind, uh, what happens to an insurer that offers the best kind of HIV coverage? It goes out of business. This table shows uh, coverage for Uh, hepatitis C drugs in all silver plans available on Florida's exchange in 2016. It comes from the I Am Essential Coalition. Patients with HIV, with hepatitis C and other expensive illnesses will scrutinize all the plan offerings that are available on an Obamacare exchange to see who offers the best coverage. The insurer that offers the best coverage for HIV will attract all of the HIV patients who will take out of that plan far more than they put in. Meanwhile, all that generous HIV coverage is going to increase the plan's premiums, which will repel the healthy people uh, and, and make them choose another less expensive plan. So as a result, no insurer can afford to be caught offering the best coverage for HIV patients, or cancer, or hepatitis C, or multiple sclerosis, cystic fibrosis, any expensive illness. Because if they are, Obamacare literally puts that insurer out of business for offering coverage that sick people want. Obamacare literally creates a race to the bottom this way by forcing insurers to compete not to provide the best coverage to the sick. And this will happen year after year. Whichever insurer makes the mistake of offering the kind of coverage that sick people want will get hit by, uh, uh, by this, this sort of penalty. We know that this is Obamacare too that's doing this rather than uh, insurance company greed because Obamacare rewards carriers for providing lousy coverage to the sick even if they do it by accident. If they happen to underinvest in claims processing or call centers or or something that the the, the sick patients rely on and healthy patients couldn't care less about, well then Obamacare rewards them even if they're not meaning to be uh, uh, discriminating or even if they're not meaning to provide lousy coverage to the sick. And we also know that this is Obamacare because we've seen this sort of rates at the bottom in other markets that have the same sort of pre-existing condition provisions. We saw it in Harvard's, Harvard University's Health Insurance Exchange. We saw it in, uh, we've seen it in the state of Massachusetts, which enacted a law like this, uh, like Obamacare, uh, before the federal government did. We've seen it in New York State, which has had community rating price controls, uh, which is another name for Obamacare's pre-existing condition provisions. We've even seen it in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, where most members of well, where members of Congress used to get their coverage, uh, so this is the main problem with Obamacare. It's that access to care is becoming progressively less secure as we are seeing the cost or the quality of coverage for sick people erode, and it's going to continue year after year, as I said, until Obamacare repeals it. Now there are provisions in Obamacare that are supposed to stop this from happening, but if you look at what at how those provisions are performing they're clearly not preventing this sort of race to the bottom. Modern Healthcare has reported that during, this is a quote, during the first three plus years of operations, those measures haven't performed as expected. Numerous tools simply haven't worked yet. The ACA's medicine is not working. After two years, uh, the uh, patients groups wrote to, uh, or the patients groups have said that we've seen little evidence of actual enforcement of the ACA's non-discrimination provisions. And Henry Ahrens of the Brookings Institution who is uh, one of the people running the, the Obamacare exchange here in Washington, D.C., has said the risk adjustment system hasn't worked as well as it had, as it had hoped. And there's reason to believe that even if these, uh, and I should add, that there isn't much appetite in Congress for the sort of rescue operation that would prevent this race to the bottom for the sort of what critics call bailouts. Increasing spending on the risk corridor program or increasing spending on the reinsurance program or uh, the reinsurance program. And there's a lot of reason to believe that even if Congress were interested in those sorts of rescues or bailouts, that the regulators would not be able to keep up with this dynamic of, uh, or keep up with this race to the bottom as Uh, And and Obamacare would continue punishing insurers if they offered quality coverage to the sick. So there remains this possibility that this race to the bottom could reach its logical conclusion, which it almost did in one county in Arizona, where all insurance companies um, uh, said, where it looked for a time that all insurance companies, there would be no insurance companies on the ACA exchange. So when Bill Clinton said that premiums doubled, that millions of people have seen their premiums double and their coverage cut in half. I think the second part is the much bigger problem. And if opponents of the law highlight this aspect of the ACA, it will probably resonate more with the public than just talking about premiums does. Thanks.